Jessa Reed is a comedian and the host of her own podcast called Awakening Orientation Department. She describes herself as an eighth dimensional being disguised as a comedian, reluctantly sharing pointers for life in the matrix. She is also the host of her other podcast, Soberish. Jessa has been featured on Comedy Central, This Is Not Happening, and more. She's a bridge between worlds, a storyteller, and a galactic ambassador to the third dimension. Jessa Reed, welcome to the creative process. Thank you for having me. And so uh, I'm in awe of comedians. And, and you've said that your comedy, in your comedy, you like to bring people to the edge of tears and then to show them uh, the way out of that darkness. And I think that that's uh, such a beautiful message. I was wondering, you know, in terms of comedy, is there a price to pay for bringing awareness to the collective? Like, is, you, is there sometimes a price to pay for being funny? Because you're often quite vulnerable. Uh, there's definitely a price to pay for being um, vulnerable. I think the trade-off when you want to uh, do what for some reason I'm driven to do, which is um, to connect people to, you know, laughing at trauma and uh, feeling an array of emotions at once. Um, you know, it's not universally palatable for sure. A lot of people are like, you know, I came here for a quick laugh. I didn't want to touch parts of myself that I didn't know existed, but that's okay with me. I'd actually rather a very small group of people really connect with it than to be universally palatable where a lot of people connect with it. And part, part of that's just because I don't, I haven't really enjoyed a lot of people knowing who I am. It's uh, unnerving. It's true because when you get more personal and more particular, of course, you, I don't want to say limit your audience, but you have more of a sense of intimacy with your listeners or, you know, whoever on, on stage. Uh, and, and so we appreciate that kind of confessional quality, which is also nice. It's not just a confession like, oh, this is what happened to me. I mean, the things that you've been through and come through and um, found strength and resilience in are just amazing. Like other people that you've known have died right yeah um, but it's nice that you're giving something back like you're trying to help people orientate themselves in the matrix thank you <laughs> I wasn't sure how much uh because I kind of have multiple careers so I have like gross storyteller and then I kind of have this other thing uh about the matrix so I never I didn't wasn't quite sure which uh version of me we were going to talk about today well both I mean don't they converge I mean isn't that isn't that sort of the uh, kind of the explosion of um the, t the two aspects that we all we all have yeah very much so I think when you um when you live a lot of life you you kind of start to sense that there is a a curtain somewhere to get behind you know, so I think they are um, kind of the same thing. When you start to really look at your trauma and your programming and what makes you tick and your involvement in all of it, uh, you start to see that reality isn't quite how it's been presented or how we've assumed that it works. And that's what I was wondering too, because about um, like, 
drugs or addictions. I was wondering how, I'm, I suppose people might find themselves in um, like a set of behaviors because you're saying reality doesn't behave the way we're told it behaves. And I wonder if some people, and whether this might be the case for you, because you obviously have this great and creative intelligence that sometimes reality, let's face it, is boring. I mean, sometimes it's surreal, but a lot of times it's just like, is this real? Um, and if that can be a way like, gosh, I've got to, I've got to change the way I see that, you know, I was just wondering, you know, what was that way in for you? Is it was like a dissatisfaction? Uh, disillusionment is what I would say. And if I had to narrow it down to one word that made me want to use drugs, it was boredom. And that that boredom was like with the entire thing, with what was presented to me as what reality is. As a, as a little kid, when you start hearing the adults be like, oh, enjoy being a little kid. Cause when you're an adult, it's about working a job that you don't like the vast majority of your days to pay for a house that is just to shelter you in between working. And it just, I, the whole thing, I was like, well, wh what, why would we do that? And so I was pretty, by the time I became a teenager, young adult, I was already like, I'm not interested in this in the slightest. It doesn't feel true, first of all. Um, I feel gaslit by this version of reality I'm being fed. But also, if this is it, no thanks. And so the entire time, you know, I spent five years just outside of society on meth. And most of the other people on drugs would talk about their old life or wanting to go back to their old life. And I was very just happy where I was because it felt more real and it felt more autonomous and it, at least I was choosing it. And so it was traumatic and awful and a lot of horrible things happened and my teeth were falling out. And sometimes I didn't have a place to sleep at night, but I was choosing it. And the other version of reality felt just completely pointless. And so um, it wasn't early on when I started using and my parents were trying to talk me out of it or whatever. They just, there was no argument because the alternative to me, but not a lot of people, I don't think that that's most addicts conscious experience with why they're using, but there is a desire to escape. Um, but I, I theorize that at the core of that, because addicts, most of the addicts I know are, are just brilliant, creative, like magical people with this just darkness. And I believe that that darkness is disillusionment. And yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I just feel like, yeah, the first stage of maybe knowing you're an artist is, you know, not wanting to follow other people's pathways. And the only thing that I can see is that it's, unfortunate when it's channeled into something that might it's abusive to your one's own body and and so the, then one is maybe damaging your own promise you know yeah uh, it's interesting those that can kind of maintain I mean maintain their creative lives at the same time I mean I don't know how you know with heavy drugs and everything I don't I don't know how that's possible yeah I wasn't one of those <laughs> I'm Those things coexisted for like 90 days. And then I was like, I'm just going to do drugs. Um, I think it, you became a comic. I, like you had a kind of skill like very early on. And I believe you became a professional comic like within 
a short space of time of getting on stage is where does this fearlessness come from? Is that the same thing that, you know, dives into drugs or whatever? Where do you know? Oh, it's not fearlessness. I have a very love-hate relationship with the stage. Um, I have crippling stage fright that never really kind of goes away for me. I've just learned ways to like cope. So, uh, well, early early on, I became a comedian on accident. I, um, when I was really young, wanted to be an actress, but didn't really do anything to move towards that, but kind of had a knowing that I would be, um, in entertainment. And I um, was kind of like a, just one of these people that was like kind of full of shit. I think that was my art was just bullshit. And so I was drunk and I, every time I drank, I would compulsively lie. I was just like compulsively lie. And the next day somebody would be like, I want to see your parents' yacht. And I would be like, oh, Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> So I was at a, at a pizza party at, for our work and I was being very funny and everyone was like, you should be a comedian. I was like, oh, I am a comedian, which is a complete, just a complete fabrication. And, um, I had been going to open mics to watch the open mics. Cause my husband at the time was funny and I was trying to get him on stage, but when I'm drunk, I just make things up. And then I, I feel like I have to, I don't want to admit that when I'm sober. So I made things up anyway. I was a compulsive liar when I was young. And so friends at work a couple days later were like, hey, we're going to come check you out tonight at the open mic. And I was like, oh, dear God. Um, so I had to get on stage rather than just admit that I am full of shit. So I got very drunk. That was how I combated the, the, the anxiety back then. I wrote jokes. Um, I've always been a writer. Uh, writing is something that comes very natural to me. It's also a way I process emotions. So I wrote the jokes, I memorized them, and then I got blackout drunk, got on stage and performed and did very well and had no intentions of pursuing this as a career. I was just like, just getting out of this uh, hot water with people at work and was invited after that to be the token female in a comedy competition. And so... I did a couple more open mics. I did the few weeks of this comedy competition and I ended up winning. And so my ninth time on stage, I won paid gigs. And so my 10th time on stage, I was a professional comedian. The whole thing happened in under a month. And then just the way I've always lived my life is like, oh, I guess this is my life path now. And I was about 20, I was 21. I think I was just, just allowed to get in bars. And so, yeah. That's amazing. Oh, I mean, it's inspiring at the same time. It's like, you don't want to advise your kids like, oh, get blackout. Trying to yeah. Yeah. Just... Fake it till you make it, honey. Like literally compulsive lie until you lie your way into a career. Uh, but it's actually so interesting. Uh, so, so getting the blackout drunk, because I imagine there's obviously some spontaneity with that. Like, maybe you don't remember. I'm not sure. That, but you had the jokes there, kind of like a scaffolding or a safety net. But then you're blackout drunk. So you've got to be spontaneous. And I love that kind of comedy. And I wish I know I don't know how all comedians work, but uh I love like the Jonathan Winters, the kind of thing, like things are being thrown at him. You can see the invention taking place. Yeah. Uh, how does spontaneity come into your process? It's yeah. so little. There's so little spontaneity. I don't know that I should like expose this, but um, I, because of the stage fright, I, um, 
I don't have a stage fright, but I get hit with adrenaline that I like can't manage in my body. And so I try not to ever have to think on stage. Now this has shifted. If I'm like on the road for months at a time, I really loosen up. I get spontaneous and stuff, but I don't spend a ton of time touring. I have like a year here, a year there, but I have kids and stuff. So it takes a really long, consistent night after night shows for me to like calm down enough to get very spontaneous. But most of what I'm doing is writing and then kind of performing almost like an actor performing a script. And I admire comedians that can riff. I mean, there's some of my favorite comedians that can do crowd work that are like funny on the spot. I'm actually not that funny. I'm not like a super... And I don't think that has a ton to do with stand-up. I think there are a lot of people that are funny, but it's a different formula being able to do stand-up, especially the stuff that I want to do because I, I want... All my stuff's autobiographical and I want people to laugh at my pain because then they can learn to laugh at their own pain. And for me, that has been... Um, it's been the thing that has made my life fantastic. I've had so much more space for the beautiful things because I haven't gotten bogged down in the painful things and, and comedy has provided that for me, that, that comedic perspective has provided that for me. And so I want to connect people to that. And uh, you have to be pretty methodical to do that. I mean, like meth piece specifically uh, to get people to let you tell them a story that dark took quite a bit of like strategy. I could, I could have never like winged that because people I, there's like, you know, it's 16 minutes of just darkness. And so about five minutes in people are like, I'm done, you know? So to like, um, Pied Piper them into this kind of world that they've you know only like judged on the surface yeah I don't know I I personally don't have the skill set to to do that uh in the moment but I do really admire that talent in other comedians no sure and what you do is quite special because of the vulnerability and I think yeah most comics it is a choreography but then to be all those biographical moments and as you said it's not even just to make sure that it's all coming out in a sequence for you but preparing your audience which I don't you know it's not something it's done on stage I mean it's it's quite a unique, uh, <laughs> yeah. unique I did carve my own little corner there's not a lot of people you a lot of competition over there. <laughs> but it is amazing because uh it's 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 wonderful that it teaches people and maybe is a kind of can be a kind of a warning to you know following certain lifestyles but also finding the comedy in it you know um also the understanding the roots of the trauma so it, people go away they're laughing but they're thinking gosh it's touching them so it might bring up memories so it's really healing and um, talking about your your mother um you know i can't imagine do you cut kind of letters from or people contacting you, like saying how it's helped them? A lot of people. Yeah. Addiction seems to be, it starts out as one thing. And then for a lot of people, they're held in it by a shame spiral. And so when I talk to people who want to know how to get out, 
I tell them to fully accept yourself as someone who does drugs. Um, fully accept yourself as someone who drinks every day or, or shoots heroin, like fully accept that about yourself and stop trying to escape it. Stop trying to put it in a box of good or bad. Stop um, judging yourself because that perpetuates the shame spiral and um, watching me it's really hard for me to toot my own horn watching me openly, honestly talk about that from a place of someone who's obviously moved on, has a great life is fine. And it's so far in the depths. I mean, it's like so much, the depths of that story is so much further than a lot of people go, um, has apparently helped a lot of people forgive themselves for where they're at and, um, accept themselves for where they're at and inspired them to get clean. So I have gotten a lot of um, messages from people who have gotten sober kind of using that as, as inspiration, which means a lot to me. I mean, when I, yeah, I, I, I don't like a lot of, I don't like the accolade stuff and I don't like it's this, the, the, the public stuff is hard for me, which I didn't know it would be. But when I hear stuff like that, that kind of makes me want to stay in it because that's just always been something that is inspiring to me, which is uh, helping people from the wrong side of the tracks, the, the misunderstood, the addicted, the, you know, helping people step into their power and believe in themselves. So uh, it's a really weird way to do it, but. <laughs> it's beautiful you have a lot, much even larger ripple than you even know, I'm sure, because some people are shy to speak out. Yeah. <laughs> um, I keep thinking about, I don't know, thinking about like disillusionment and like I'm a senior, you know, in college right now. And it's kind of a, a point in time where, I don't know, your podcast has really helped me. I don't know, think about like reality and what like a normal kind of life is and what it means to be in this reality like that is something that I struggle with and I don't know I'm just curious like how you if you feel like you've found like a middle ground between like what you kind of the way that the world wants you to think about reality and life versus like being in a dark place and coming out of that and how do you cope with this version of reality um, it's a little stressful right now. I I think as anyone who can like, I hate to say like empath, but anyone who is uh, in touch with their emotions, which, you know, I wasn't for a long time. And the last couple of years have been rough because I can feel my feelings and it's, 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 it's hard how much suffering is out there right now. But what I actually learned on drugs and then eventually didn't need drugs anymore because I was like, oh, I can actually do this sober, is that my version of reality isn't the collective delusion. It isn't the, like what everyone else has decided about what reality is doesn't actually have a ton to do with me. It obviously has a little bit. Um, and, you know, there's obviously a lot of really unfair uh, systemic issues that need to be dealt with. And um, 
I believe I'm actually really hopeful. I'm really as, as, as big of a mess as everything is right now. I truly believe this is the, the collapse of something and something great is coming. But what I've learned is that my reality is something that exists inside of me and that I am able, no matter what the outside circumstances are, I am able to paint that portrait any way that I want. And that's actually something I learned homeless, without money for food, with no teeth, on the streets, addicted to drugs. And I was still finding happiness in those moments. And I was like, oh, okay, this is this is an inside job. And so that's something I forget, you know, I feel like last year was a lot of external enemy narratives. Uh, for me, I had a lot of uh, trauma. Actually, I would say the last few years, uh, a lot of childhood trauma. I think I was working through, and you know, in other people as mirrors. But this year uh, has been a much more internal year for me, and I, what I hope to communicate on my podcasts is that each of us has the ability to create utopia within ourselves, and then that will affect the way the entire world experiences reality. Like we can reprogram this reality. We are not just victims of it. We can program it. We do have that power. Yes. And we should say with your podcast, uh, awakening and soberish uh the so that you're talking about the two the two sides mm-hmm. or the different elements uh, yeah they're great resources not just if you're going through um coronavirus isolation <laughs> and you want to and just just really nice um and you was you spoke about it there um maybe you could go into it a little bit more you touched on or when you were using, you found a kind of intuition or even almost like a psychic, um, you know, a, ability to transmit certain energy or could you mm-hmm. like to go into that a bit? Um, I had a near-death experience about six months into uh, drug addiction. I think I started doing drugs in June of 99 and in January of 2000, Um, I died at a club called the Ohm, which is hilarious to me. And I uh, went to a big blue ball of light and which told me I could stay if I wanted to stay and I could go back to earth if I wanted to go back to earth. And I just came out of that knowing things. And then over the course of the next few years, had a lot of contact with um, what I call aliens. They kind of look like aliens. And, um, but not like extraterrestrial aliens, just like higher um, dimensional beings. And uh, basically they said that reality is a game that we play here on earth so that like our souls can learn that uh, we were the dinosaurs and every other iteration of humans, but that the game that we were currently in would be ending soon and that this game was a fear-based dichotomy-based reality, we would be coming out of that. And uh, a lot of the things that they said would happen started happening around uh, 2012 to 2017. Uh, It's obviously all happening right now. And so in that time, they, I already had a couple gifts that had shown up when I was younger. 
and had kind of gotten in trouble for when I was a born again Christian. I could uh, see people's trauma and how it was affecting their lives. I could see what they were like stories they were telling themselves. Uh, that kicked up and um, it was almost like I was being trained, but you know, I was also on drugs. So my disclaimer is always, you know, maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's methamphetamines, but <laughs> I, um, yeah, I had a lot of very supernatural experiences in that time. I was able to uh, kind of see things and hear things and uh, figure out cures for a lot of stuff. A lot of drug addicts don't want to go to the doctor because they have warrants and stuff. And I was able to figure out natural cures for stuff. I was very tuned into something. And then when I got clean, it kind of went away for a couple of years and slowly came back from 2007 to 2017 in a much more kind of grounded way. And I just lived like that very quietly. You know, most people weren't into this stuff or open to this stuff until very recently. I didn't come out of the, the woo closet, as I call it, until July of 2019. And um, yeah, on any given day, I still don't love being out of it just because it is, it's like far more, I'd way rather talk about drinking my pee than let you know that I, um, you know, see aliens. <laughs> Yeah, it can be scary. Uh, judgment. Yeah, there's a lot of judgment out there. Yeah. There was one thing that you had mentioned, and you'd said that you had this kind of flourishing of your gifts um, in terms of maybe kind of psychic or being in tune. And you had mentioned it between 2007, 2017. Do you feel that you, it, you no longer needed them as much? Or is, I don't know. Like, there was, they were really strong. Do you mean before 2007 or since? Uh, yeah, I don't know. You had mentioned these dates. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. It's about a decade, 2007. And then you said until 2017, I thought, what happened? Um, it was kind of a re, how do I describe that portion of my life? I was living with magic for lack of a better word. You know, I, I learned how to manifest. I learned how to create the reality you know, it's another thing that like, I, I don't like things like the secret or whatever. It's very pie in the sky, but I, I, my understanding of reality is, is an algorithm and the way that you interact with the algorithm cultivates the reality that you live in. I learned all of this. I was 2017. What happened was it had kind of culminated to the point that it became more of my whole life. I guess like reality became so magic where before it was just kind of something running underneath the surface. And, you know, in 2017, a lot of people started to like wake up. They started to realize that reality isn't what they thought and that they were, we, they were programmers and creators of it. And as that started to take place, um, it really heightened for me. So I would say I'm at like a peak right now for a lot of this stuff. It is like the forefront of my life, even though I still live a very grounded, you know, normal life because I, I just don't think this stuff is pie in the sky or you don't have to be a hippie weirdo to be tapped into energy 
and you know manifestation and magic and stuff I actually I think it's you know if it's not grounded it's not effective you know um but I think that that was a timeline for a lot of people 2012 to 2017 if you look back at our culture huge like unprecedented changes in you know consciousness and not just necessarily like we we realize there's aliens but like we we like social consciousness environmental consciousness like all of these different like it was a literal awakening where people were like whoa i didn't realize i was doing that um i didn't realize i was treating people like that i didn't realize that's rape you know i did i mean i had these experiences where i didn't realize that you know things that had happened to me were trauma and so that window of time i was like me living a very normal life but also um going through a lot of like, I don't know, I hate all the words for this stuff, but enlightenment stuff, manifestation stuff, um, some trauma stuff. Oh, well, yeah, I like your word for it, awakening. I think that it's more open, there's a progression of something. Yeah. So as I understand, so it was, it was still, it was within you, but was it still a little bit outside of you up until like the 2017? Now it's just more, you know, integrated. So I like that. It's a kind of all-in-one awakening. I was first introduced to Jessa Reed when I saw her stand-up set called Meth Pee. And in this set, she opened up about her experience as a meth addict and the trauma that came along with that. This particular set kind of garnered a lot of attention for Jessa and she became a lot more popular and well-known as a comedian. A few years later, I was introduced to her podcast, Awakening OD, and I thought that it was so interesting how multifaceted she was as a comedian and kind of this spiritual guide and teacher. I think that what's really important and useful about Jessa is that she is really coming from a place of having had these really traumatic experiences and she speaks from her own perspective. I also think it's useful that she is kind of carving her own path in the spiritual world um, and she talks a lot about new age spirituality as you know being too like pie in the sky and I think that's like really clarifying for people who are kind of trying to get into the spiritual world but are a little bit hesitant because of their preconceived notions about it at the end of the day we're all kind of struggling to figure out what this world is and how to construct our lives especially in this kind of new era of life i think that we are waking up to a certain degree to ourselves and i think that i at least struggle I struggle with the status quo of kind of the normal way to live my life and having someone like Jessa to kind of hear from, you know, as I'm entering the world and kind of leaving like the system of schooling and education is really assuring for me because 
I don't think I'm gonna feel as lost coming out of it. And I'm sure that I'll feel lost and confused in many moments along the way and probably have a total existential crisis about life once again. <laughs> but it's really easy to just kind of get sucked into the structures that we know, um, particularly in education, which is just something I'm thinking about a lot because I'm a senior in college and kind of reckoning with what I've been doing for the last like 20 years of my life. Um, it's weird to reach a point where you are kind of disillusioned with the system that has kind of mothered you for a really long time and kept you in its claws. Not that education is evil or bad at all. It's it's wonderful and awesome and I'm so grateful for, you know, being able to get the education that I'm getting. But at the same time, like I'm having a lot of moments where I'm really understanding that this path that I chose to take was not really a choice that I made for myself, it was a choice that had kind of already been chosen for me. It just has made me think a lot about like the agency that we have over our lives and how that fun how that agency functions in a world and a culture where you are expected to be this productive like agent of capitalism and I don't want to live and make choices from a place of fear or a place of expectation. If we can strive to feel good and strive to be aligned with ourselves and follow our own intuitions, like that is, I don't know, that's kind of the only thing that we can do for ourselves. And I really want to continue to live with that intention. Now back to the interview. I listen to Awakening OG a lot and I feel like you kind of emphasize like, you know, nothing matters and there aren't any rules, um, which I love. I mean, it's very freeing and liberating, but how, like, how do you reckon that with thinking about like morality and striving to be good in this world? Um, I think that I struggle with that sometimes, you know what I mean? Yeah, it is, uh, it is paradox, right? So it, there are things in this reality, this reality is currently dualistic. This reality currently does have this idea of good and bad. And so when I say these things don't actually exist, they don't matter in higher dimensional reality, when we leave this physical form and we go back into source and, and the, the rules, the parameters are constructs, but the constructs are valid and we are really having these experiences. Like we are really feeling this trauma. So when I zoom out, I go, it doesn't, it doesn't actually matter that I was molested as a kid. Like that, that isn't on a, you know, in the 12th dimension, it isn't really of any consequence but it's in my body that trauma is in my body. It affects my life. It, it informs my, the way that I move through the world. And so I think there is this, the further you go into consciousness, you have to be able to hold multiple ideas at the same time and understand when to apply what, and there's this pressure 
in spirituality to be above your trauma and be above this idea of right or wrong. And that is that spiritual bypassing. And that will always boomerang back because the most important work to be done right now is the clearing of trauma and the releasing of this stuff from our body and integrating the ability to feel our feelings because I think sometimes people talk about like, oh, the fifth dimensional reality, like it's some pie in the sky woo thing where we levitate. And it's like literally just your emotions. It's just being able to perceive something with your mind, uh, which I would consider fourth dimensional reality, and then process it through your emotional body. And so the reason that 5D Earth would be a paradise, a utopia, is because if everybody could truly feel their feelings, and had all the trauma out of their body, all the backlog of trauma out of their body, we wouldn't have wars because the wars and the, and the trauma and the violence and the sexual violence and, the, and all of this is coming from people not being able to feel their feelings and not being able to process through their emotional body. And so a lot of times this, you know, this kind of shit on new age spirituality a lot because it's, it's nonsense, it's fluffy shit. It's like, no, we're talking about feelings. So that instinct to go, okay, well, not it's it does, it doesn't matter. That is liberating when you're stuck in your mental space and you're just you're you're just analysis paralysis. But that's not helpful information if you're using it to avoid processing your feelings and and feeling. Um, because that is really like kind of how you how the, how the cycle of an experience, which is what we're here for is just experience. And that's where good and bad don't exist, you know? Um, but if you can't feel it, then you just stuff it into your body and it, and it, and it mirrors back to you in every future experience. Yeah. I, it makes a lot of sense what you say. And I think it's great. I think it's, it's very helpful and healing for people who've gone through trauma and just for everyone to just to think you know this too will pass you know in the big picture where you know we're energy and we're not you know it it levels out in the end and we don't have to be defined by those moments that happened to us that we didn't ask for yeah and, and you mentioned your uh, being molested as a child and um have spoken about you've addressed this the kind of shame that one feels like the silence that's a covered in you know not even being aware what it was until like later um and i i just i think it's so unfair that it does happen but i imagine as a, as a wise child a very response like the adult almost in your relationship with your mother or kind of a responsible young person you might think oh, I, I, I must be something in me. I, I should have been an adult or, you know, how yeah. was that for you? And how did you get to that point of, you know, acceptance and just understanding? Um, it's interesting. Uh, my relationship with my trauma is I, I, I literally, when I say I wouldn't trade it, I wouldn't trade it for the, for anything, because I, I 
who I really enjoy myself, I am the product of finding my way out of the mazes created by the trauma of my childhood. And so my experience with it has been, you know, painful and difficult, but also like beautiful. And for me, uh, this is where I am able to go, okay, it's just experience, you know, and, but I go very, very into it. So the, the getting, molested as a kid is, is this experience that I have been learning from, you know, as recent as 2019, I was having huge revelations about ways that it was still affecting my life, which I guess some people would, would see as a negative thing, but it's such a, it's a paradox, right? So, um, I, as a kid, it was the eighties, man. And they, they just didn't, they just barely started to talk about it and, uh, and kids really weren't believed. I wasn't going to be, I wasn't believed. And, you know, cause the guy had some standing in a church and my mom was a drug dealer and, uh, it went on for years and I did tell one, I, it took me a long time to even know that he wasn't supposed to be doing that. And now I go, the reason I didn't know that is because we didn't teach kids body autonomy back then you make kids hug people, relatives they don't want to hug kids. I truly believed that like adults are allowed to do whatever they want to your body. And I, they showed us a thing at school. I hated it. I didn't like it. And it did affect up until extremely recently. I didn't like being hugged. I didn't like people standing too close to me. You know, I was very, very, very skittish with any type of physical touch that I've, I've healed a lot of that, but, um, I didn't know what was happening until the, we had like a, an assembly, not an assembly, but like a program they made us watch at school and explained inappropriate touch. That's so why I immediately reported him. I was like, oh, cool. Cause I don't like that at all. I, so this is happening to me. And then that teacher didn't do anything, but like had me keep telling her for a year. It was very strange. And uh, it's weird because you're a kid and you think the adults are good and right. And so there was a lot of like self-doubt, you know, I'm like eight, nine years old and, you know, I have an eight-year-old now and I think about her, I was very adult, I guess, because I, I think about her like trying to self-advocate like I was trying to self-advocate or like explain to adults and I can't. I can't fathom it, but I was a very adult kid because of the rest of my childhood. Um, I don't even remember the question anymore, but yeah, it, it was definitely a, a journey of trying to get believed when I was young and I never was believed. And then that turned into that compulsive liar attention seeker pretty quickly. And so that, that phase of my life from like it actually started when I started getting abused. I started this like attention seeking thing. And there was almost this voice in my head that was always saying, this will show them. And so I would do these like dramatic and I was a pretty good actress. I would create these entire realities and worlds. At one point I had this bus driver convinced that I was a teen mom, um, but I was in Delaware and, uh, and you know, so everyone knows everyone. So the bus driver then went to my stepmom, who was a bartender and was like, man, that's crazy. She handles all this and like also a child. And my stepmom was like, what? <laughs> um, but I was creating these 
I was trying to get people to listen, you know, and that, that played out until I started doing drugs. I think I kind of snapped out of the bullshit stuff once life got crazy enough that I didn't need to make anything up. Well, it's interesting because you said it one, you know, you said there was a teacher who listened, but didn't do anything. So sometimes there are like real reasons for lying. One, you have to amplify what you're trying to tell them because they're not listening. Yeah. Or two, the reality is boring or painful or whatever. And you have to create a parallel, you know, you have to live in a world that at least excites your imagination or makes life bearable. Totally. And my, you know, my mom was not, not, you know, she's, she's not fun. She was addicted to drugs. She was not very nice. I really didn't think she wanted me there. I mean, this is something that has taken a lot of healing for me to realize like, she's probably just a bitch, but you know, uh, cause she's fine now. But my dad went through his own kind of spiritual awakening a couple of years ago. And the mirror in which he, that was happening for him was, realizing that if it had if my childhood and the way that I was behaving had played out in 2018 2019 with what we know now it would have been completely obvious within months of me getting abused because I was getting molested for three years that it was happening but in the 80s attention seeking was a punishable offense we just were so disconnected and it was all about disciplining kids and punishing kids, you know? And so everyone's just trying to punish this behavior out of me. And now you look back and you go, well, she spent an entire visit pretending to be a dog and refused to talk. Uh, You know, she would make up these big, colorful, weird realities and feed them to people. Like she's obviously trying to escape from some sort of, you know, reality. And so I'm so glad now we have, you know, we, we collectively are more honest with kids about their bodies, you know, and we give them autonomy. Like my kids don't have to say hi to you if they don't want to say hi to you. Like I don't make my kids uh, interact with anyone in at all in a way that feels unnatural to them. I teach them boundaries and I, you know, also don't really let anybody have much access to them without me there. But I, I just think the eighties were, we were all just so disconnected from that emotional space, you know, and then it was also horrific to think of, I don't know anyone in my generation that didn't get molested. I I literally don't know one, one, woman in my generation that didn't get molested the idea of like parenting has become like a verb now and all these things i wonder if there was a bit of a, a something to do with the, the the 60s you know bleeding into you know where all those boundaries were all and i wonder if that relaxed the way children or i never even know relaxed but just skewed things i'm just not sure how that works generationally uh, but i do get that other thing that you've said that your trauma, I mean, you can't even imagine yourself without having had it, you wouldn't be the same person. So while it sets up uh, patterns for relationships and certain things you have to get over, it also gave you that incredible, I'm sure, imagination and resilience. Absolutely. I mean, I probably was already an imaginative kid, but the worlds that I was able to create while trying to escape from trauma, you know, I, it definitely got a a good workout. 
And even in the way that the things affected my life, you know, I think my, my relationship with my parents had a profound impact on my, my relationships. And I also just wouldn't trade that. I mean, I think I'm definitely someone who needs life to be interesting, needs a problem to be solving. You know, I see it kind of like mazes and that's what I find stimulating. So I still wouldn't trade that because I just don't accept anything as permanent. So, you know, I've uh, found out a couple of years ago that I have attachment stuff and I kind of realized that a couple of my early relationships where I really thought I was the victim of abandonment, I realized that I kind of imposed that story on people that were trying to love me and um, that I can be quite destructive in relationships, trying to prevent somebody leaving. And I kind of realized like, oh, this is, I'm playing my childhood on people. And I found a lot of codependency in myself. And I didn't just go, well, this is because of my childhood. So now it's ruined, like it's ruined. My life is ruined because of my childhood. I mean, that's an option. It's certainly an option for that to be the impression but instead i said okay well now i know the root and so i can reverse engineer this and that's so, it's so much fun i mean i wouldn't say that while i was in it you know they say you can't feel the good without the bad but i mean that's truly my experience like right now i just recovered from uh lyme disease that i had for a year and a half and uh, worst thing that's ever happened to me. Somehow this is the worst. It was the worst thing. I lost parts of myself. I lost my vocabulary. I couldn't walk. I couldn't, I like my favorite parts of myself, my creativity, my imagination, my, all of it gone for that part was for about three or four months. And the level of gratitude and just joy that I am experiencing right now in my present moments over just tiny, tiny things. I'm like, I feel like someone who got a second chance at life, who came back from the dead. I'm like more engaged with my children. I'm more engaged in my relationship. I'm just like so content to just have these moments. And I was a pretty disassociated person, a lot of concepts and ideas and stuff, not a lot of living in my moments. I wouldn't be here right now if I didn't almost die from this disease, you know? Um, and that's just how I've always felt about everything. Like I, I have so much gratitude and appreciation for this beautiful relationship I have now. Uh, and it feels so much better that it is the product of me doing the work to heal that stuff from my childhood. So I think childhood trauma can be a gift because it gives you such an en enriched experience if you just go through it, you know, we can stop at I'm a victim, but we also have the option of moving through it, which gives you such a deeper experience in reality, which is why I think we come to this shithole. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> this is, I, I'm having a hard time calling earth a shithole cause I'm starting to fall in love with life, but um, it's like shithole adjacent for sure. Well, from the soil and the shit grows, the, the flowers grow. Yeah, there you go. Do you feel like forgiveness is a is like required in healing those relationships? Or maybe, I mean, maybe healing those relationships isn't even like required for healing the trauma, but 
is that is that just kind of a Christian norm that people throw around or do you feel like it is important? Um, for me, uh, I'm a uh, forgiveness is a gift you give yourself kind of person. But forgiveness for me is not necessarily connected to the person. And this is something like with childhood trauma stuff. As I was working through it, both of my parents who are now sober and, and healed and, you know, really regretful of a lot of things. I've definitely had time where I told them because they can receive it, you know, they're, they're able to take responsibility or whatever, but it's kind of just separate for them. It's just, now it's me and that experience. I do, I am someone who forgives very fast and I don't need you to apologize for me to forgive. I'm, I'm like annoyingly objective. So whenever I'm taking a stance or have an opinion on something, that opinion truly lasts for like five minutes. And then I go, well, if you look at it, you put yourself in their shoes. And most people, everyone's just doing the best they can with what they got. And even the horrific serial killers are just glitched out trauma. You know, they're just people that got broken by trauma. And so, but for my own personal traumas, yes, but I don't think it can be feigned forgiveness. I don't think, I think everything's a process and I don't think you should rush yourself to anything ever, but there is, there is a temptation to hold on to resentment because it feels like if you don't hold on to this resentment, you are letting them off the hook. And I don't believe that is true. Uh, when I'm resenting someone now I'll kick people out of my life. If you don't know how to fucking act, I just, I don't, I don't care if you're my parents. I don't care if you're my, I don't, I, I literally, I don't think we need to hold on to relationships of any sort. If I'm in a romantic relationship and it's not working by we have this idea that we have to keep people around because they've been around for a long time. I don't believe in any of that, but I can kick you out of my life because you don't know how to act. Um, but also forgive you because that resentment, it, it takes energy from your system to maintain that. And also it keeps you, it keeps you in a, it keeps you in a circumstance and you don't pass the whole thing through. So um, for me, I love the phase where I finally have like healed enough that I can see where the person was coming from and go, oh, I can even take responsibility for my part in it. I don't need to put you in a bad box. I just put you in a person, you know, I can usually like, I don't know, I got like brutally discarded by someone last year who I thought was a really close friend and I pretty quickly, once I kind of saw what was happening, I just came to a place of compassion for them because they had a lot of trauma that makes it difficult for them to stay close to people. And although it hurt me that they left, if I'm looking at it outside of my own pain, you know, allowing myself to take a minute and look at it from like a bird's eye view, it's sad that they can't have connections without it turning into something dark you know, and, um, I'm going to go on and have more friends and hopefully at some point they will go on and, and have some friends, but I can, I can get out of my pain for a second. And, and, you know, I probably wouldn't let that person come back. You know, I probably wouldn't, but I could, I could have a cleansing talk with them and say like, I love you. This is very triggering for my personal trauma. So I don't think that we're a good like fit, 
but I absolutely forgive you. And I forgave you before you came and asked for that. I don't think the person's ever going to come and ask for that, but like I, yes. So I think that forgiveness is a gift you give yourself, but it can't be fake forgiveness because you're judging yourself for not forgiving. You have to give yourself time to feel the feelings and have them be the villain. I think everything is true. I, you know, I find that a lot of times when I think I was the victim in something, once I have gone through the whole process, I realize uh, I was also the villain. You know, I think we're all each other's narcissists. Yeah, well, that's a very uh, perceptive um, observation. And that kind of example of radical uh, compassion, unfortunately, it's a bit rare these days. But I think that it's something, uh, I think that we could teach it more. Um, I'm thinking you you mentioned people who even who are who've committed murder or serial killers, you said that, you know, they had a glitch or, you know, in some countries, uh, you know, in Europe or you know, someone commits murder and they can, you know, be released not long afterwards. Um, and I don't know, that might be a little bit controversial for people, but I wonder what your reflections are on mental health, uh, mental health in America, you know, are we, you know, turning away from these things? Are there ways we could integrate it even into our educational system where it's not all about data and STEM? You know, there's some other things that we have to address that might really help society um, and, and let us be more efficient as, as well. Um, I think this trend towards, you know, I homeschool my kids and they go to like supplemental schools and, um, Fortunately, I've lived places where those supplemental schools included mindfulness. And so from a very young age, it's part of their education is getting in touch with your feelings, um, understanding what makes you tick. Uh, I think this stuff is so much more important than the cramming of information and data when we have the internet anyway for that. I think... Our old system is all based on this duality of like needing to put everything in a box of good or bad. So even it's controversial for me to say something like murderers have a, a glitch, right? Because what people hear in that duality is, so you're saying that it's okay. And it's like, no, everything doesn't fit into a box of good or bad. There is a gradient and as we start to kind of come out of that, we realize that most of the things that we are considering bad are born of trauma, are born of programming and punishment, which is our go-to for everything, right? And so when we were kids, it was like, you got hit for having emotions. And then we become adults and we're cold and we're hurting each other because we can't feel our emotions because it was a punishable offense when we were children. And our whole society, is built like that. I mean, there's, there's like an insane amount of drug addicts in prison. And, you know, when I was on drugs, I did drugs with a lot of just like sweet, kind people who just were drug addicts. And then they got put in prison for getting caught with drugs and they come out and they're like, now they're felonious. Do you know what I mean? Like now they're, cause you just went and traumatized them and punished them for something that was already like, addiction is built in punishment. Like it's built, your teeth fall out, your, your friends die. You know, it's, it's, it's already a, it's already enough punishment in it. 
And so we're not, we don't fix things in the old system of doing things. We actually are making them worse all the way to, you know, same thing with punishing kids. You're not child's having a hard time regulating their emotions and we hit them or throw them in a room, you know, and I've done both. Um, you, you throw them in the room and we feel like we're solving the problem, but it's actually just because we can't regulate our own nervous system when someone else is freaking out in front of us. But what we're actually doing is sending them a message that your emotions are bad. And so we're creating this kind of snowball effect. So what I think is happening right now as this adult generation is learning these things, is learning how to regulate their nervous system, is learning how to identify their triggers and deal with their trauma responses and get this trauma out of their body. We are raising this, this younger generation, that gave me goosebumps, raising this younger generation to know who they are, to identify their feelings, to set boundaries, to feel their feelings. And when this generation gets older and this is the, it's just going to be a completely different reality because it's not being run by unmitigated unconsciousness. Well, yeah, I have, um, you know, we're deeply, we're an educational initiative. So I'm seeing the fruits of some of that kind of uh, change and mindset. And um, I always feel like we could do more because we do see a lot of anger out there that is stoked by the different platforms and um, it gets clicks and it's rewarded. So mm -hmm. I, I, I know there's still a lot of work to do, but I think it's, it's wonderful that people can heal, say through your podcast, through hearing your stories. And, you know, I'm very hopeful because the students, at least, I mean, I find that students who come to us, they're, they're really wonderful. And they have so much generosity, not just for themselves, you know, like their own story, but also for, um, you know, helping others or helping the planet. So I get a lot of inspiration from them. I love these Gen Z kids, man. They're fucking great. I, I think of the, the generations as just such a perfect illustration of our process into higher consciousness. So you have like the Gen X, which is my generation and we're real chill, you know, we're real chill cause we're completely disassociated. So we're like, you know, whatever. And then the poor millennials got the worst of it. Cause they just like have like emotions and they're tuned into all of the, the, uh, the injustices and the, the sadness. And I just like the, they were awake you know, I, when the millennials started being like, what are we doing to the earth? I was like, what? <laughs> I didn't even notice, you know? Um, and so they carried the, the brunt of it. And then the Gen Z, uh, they remind me of Gen X a little bit. They're a lot more chill than the millennials, but they are, yeah, just kind of integrated compassion. And uh, I think just a knowing it's all right. We're going to figure it out. You know, they're not quite carrying the the weight of the world on their shoulders like uh, the poor millennials were. And then the young kids, I don't know what we're calling them, the alpha generation or something, which I think is interesting. We went um, we go back to XYZ. Alpha? I didn't know. Okay, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, when I heard that, I was like, well, gee, a little on the nose, you know, a little on the nose for the collapse of civilization and the, and the arrival of a new one. But... Uh, that may, you know, it checks out my uh, 11 year old I named Phoenix because when, I love that. 
when he was born. I was like, well, from the ashes of the old world, uh, this child's generation will be the new world. So I was, I really appreciated it when they named the generation according to my personal beliefs. I guess in closing, uh, you know, what do you tell uh, your children? What What is your message for this, you know, alpha generation, Gen Z? The lessons that were important for you, uh, the things that you'd like them to know, preserve and remember? I am autonomy obsessed. And I, so there's a lot of that in my parenting, which is kind of funny because one of them doesn't like to make decisions. Uh, Phoenix actually doesn't like to make decisions. And so when he was younger, I would be like, you are eight years old. You need to be able to decide for yourself. (laughs) And he's like, just pick my breakfast. I don't want to have to think about it. Um, I mostly, I, from a very young age, I taught them the difference between like a universal truth which is almost nothing, you know, and a societal construct. I, I kept a lot of my version of reality off their radar because I wanted them to come to whatever conclusion felt natural to them. So, and, you know, if I, I didn't speak to them about my beliefs until they brought them up. And if anybody wanted to share their belief system with the kids, I'm like, you have to preface this by saying this is your belief system and that you have the, the right to choose your own. And for how the world is, you know, it's interesting to be a parent through the last couple of years. I explained to them that I believe this to be the collapse of the civilization and that, you know, the world I grew up in kind of doesn't matter a whole lot because it has nothing to do with the world that they're going to grow up in. And so when I talk to them, it's almost mythology. And, you know, I don't tell them things like, now what you're going to have to do, because I have no idea, because this is not sustainable. This is, I feel like we're, we're hanging out in a zombie timeline right now. And the new world is really, it's up to us to build, you know, with these kids. And so... Yeah, it's kind of like ancient history, almost. And I, I encourage them to access a new world in their imagination, because I think that's how we're going to build it. Yeah, well, it's it's very brave, because as you said, uh, you know, our generation, we're kind of taught to, I don't know if it was like respect for elders, but we're taught to a them in some ways and and it's very brave to say you know I don't have all the answers I know this little bit but you have to plow these new fields I mean we've devastated the fields so I I do feel for what they will have to accomplish it's very interesting and I thank you so much for the openness uh, in sharing your story um so Thank you, Jessa Reed, for letting us inside your head and sharing your comedic and creative pathways to survival in the 21st century so that we might lead lives with more meaning and purpose. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you so much for having me. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview is conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Austin Yulhansen. The Digital Media Coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. 
We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you so much for listening.